Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. I'm Chesney. And today we are talking about episode 26 of Revolutionary Girl Utena, Mickey's Nest Box, also known as the Sunlit Garden Arrangement, because all of Mickey's episodes have to do with the Sunlit Garden. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like we open the show with the Sunlit Garden playing, except this time, like it's. Um, Got that like mixed down of being played on the radio and then re-recorded. Um, I love that special effect when they do that because like in the show, diegetically, it's music within the car that Akio is driving in. Yeah, and they've established in earlier episodes with this song that it is a song that like is famous in some capacity, but the way that this shot opens makes it feel like Akio and his radio in his car is specifically listening in on Mickey playing it right this second which makes it even creepier and gives Akio this like more of this all-knowing omniscient <laughs> yeah <laughs> flair to him yeah and like this goes along with the idea of like him you know at this point I think a couple episodes into this arc, we're circling this idea that Akio is the end of the world. Right. And so, like, we've known all along that whoever the end of the world is, is this omniscient figure within a Tori Academy. Um, Akio sits at the highest point in the Academy, like, literally, physically, his office is towering above literally everything else. And so it's got this, like, panopticon feel up in the chairman's office with all the windows facing out in every direction except for the elevator mm -hmm. and like being able to see the entire campus from on high. And so even now, like when he's traveling, his radio can tune in to whatever he wants to hear on the campus. And the conversation taking place between him and Toga is about like needing to defeat Utena for, you know, the, the purposes of all of this. In order for the duelists to move forward, they have to beat Utena because now she is a wall in the way of everything that they are after. Yeah, he says something interesting, which is that Toga, first of all, calls Utena the golden goose. Like, wait, isn't she just the golden goose that like we're pursuing or like leading along? And Akio says, no, the value of the golden goose lies in the golden eggs that it lays, meaning like what we can do with it, not the, the thing itself. Right. He has completely objectified Utna in this moment. Yeah. Like we could sense it all along, but like in saying it this way, he has literally reduced Utna to an object. She is a means to an end. And Whatever interest he is showing in her is purely to use her. Toga learned from the best and Akio is showing that. Because <laughs> this is the same game that Toga was playing in the first season. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen it this whole time with anyone that Akio's interacted with. Like anyone that he has any kind of relationship, whether it's entirely superficial or not, with is a means to an end in some capacity. He did that with Mikage and the uh, woman that was like Mikage's love interest. Tokiko. Yes. 
he's like we've seen him do this over and over at this point so like anyone he associates himself with like i don't is he just like a sociopath like he just does not have anyone like that he is actually friends with even anthe is like he views as an object a means to an end a possession not sister i would complicate the anthe one a little bit in that the level of control he seems to need to exert over her is more direct. It involves force as opposed to power. And yeah. I, I say that in like the Foucauldian sense of like when you have power, you don't need to use force. Power is something that you hold because somebody else gives it to you. And yeah. in Anthe's case, we repeatedly see he needs to use force to keep her in line, which yeah. is a very different relationship to say Toga, who he can merely persuade. Yeah. Um, or Utana, who he can influence with his both like charisma. Yeah. Like, like his, <laughs> yeah. His charisma and also his office as chairman, his position yeah. as Anthe's brother. You know, he doesn't need to ever like throw Utana around. Yeah. Um, in order to get what he wants from her. In fact, if he tried that, it would probably backfire. Yeah. Um, but then we have someone like Anthe, who, in a different sense, has power of her own, like literal magical powers. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is different from like power in a social sense. But nevertheless, we have the same word for two different things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like for her... Because she has so much power of her own, he is reduced to forcing her to do things in order to get his way. Yeah. We have already like veered into this territory. So I'm going to pause here and just let folks know today's episode, we cannot discuss the sibling relationship between uh, Mickey and Kozue, who, which is at the center of this episode, which we haven't even mentioned their names yet, really. But, um, we can't really discuss that without also discussing child sexual assault and the signs of it as someone grows older and lives with that trauma. That is going to be peppered throughout this episode. I will try to call out the moments ahead of time when we get into like specific detailed discussion of it so that you can skip those moments. But once again, like if this is an entire topic that you cannot engage with, by all means, go ahead and skip to the next episode once it's released. Um, so in the case of like Anthe and Akio, we know that their dynamic is unique. I would also point out like, I think his relationship to the prince is unique. Like he wants whatever the prince represents, but I think there's more to it than just objectifying the prince. Like there's a deeper emotional need there than just like, flattening the prince to an object and trying to use him yeah and it wasn't until some comments that you made kind of pieced some things that i'd seen in this episode together for me um that made me realize why mickey wants to be this princely figure because i agree i don't really think it's an objectification it's like a this is who i should have been I think it's like aspirational. Yeah, I think he it's interesting. I think he wants to stand up and save those 
that are vulnerable, that are in distress. And I think based on what we see in this episode, it's probably from guilt of his own. And even this opening scene that we have for the episode where Kozue jumps out a window in the middle of class to save a nest of baby birds shows that she also wants to save those that are vulnerable, that cannot defend themselves. And when Mickey calls out to her and she falls into his arms, like, again, that pieced with what we see later in this episode, finally pieced together for me at the at the end of it all, like, oh, this is what's happened. And I'll, I'll get into those details later as we get into the scene that I'm referring to. But I just really think that it's aspirational and it's also from guilt on Mickey's okay. end. Oh, so for Mickey, not just for Akio. Correct. Okay. Because I, I thought you had started out talking about Akio there as well. So like, is it is the prince figure aspirational for Akio? Is that what you're saying? No, I was okay. solely talking about Mickey. Akio, I feel like covets that. It's like, I don't have it, but I wish I did. Like, I know I'm not this person. I wish I was. It's a little bit of a different nuance there for me. Okay. Like, you know, when someone's like, ah, I'm such a bad person. I wish I wasn't, but I'm still a bad person and does bad person things. You know, like, it's like, do you really wish that you weren't? Because I feel like if you (laughs) did, you would be doing different things. So. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, Akio's whole deal is he wants to be a better person. There is like, I think there is like an aspirational quality to his admiration of the prince. But I think also the fact that he doesn't do that, like the fact that he actually is the one hurting people. Yeah. Is both what keeps him from being the prince and also feeds that guilt that you're talking about Mm -hmm. where like he leans into this way of being that this like smarminess <laughs> like this elemental primordial smarminess uh as I, I think sort of like a well this is all i can be if i'm going to be the villain i'm going to be entirely in it for myself you know um no half measures that kind of thing mm-hmm. wow it's almost like <laughs> i i just it's so funny because when you see characters like this, they're just like, wow, it's almost as if we have control over our own actions. Wow, that's <laughs> that's crazy. Oh my God. There's I can't believe there's a thing that exists that's called accountability. Oh God, wow. Well, yeah, that's like crazy. The way he <laughs> the way he copes with his guilt is by pretending there's nothing to feel guilty for. Yeah. And just like insisting that this is just how the world is and you're all just too young and naive to realize it. we're all like this is like how he views the world and speaking as an adult no right <laughs> that is not that is certainly not how the world is not every adult is like that you monster <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's just you inflicting your trauma onto other people and like i i do have to say Recording this episode right now, today, uh, today is April 23rd, 2022. Um, Right now in America, the right wing is playing with fire 
by accusing people of being groomers and pedophiles completely baselessly. Mm -hmm. Because like this is an attack tactic that works politically by riling people up with like the biggest red button you can push. And and it is playing with fire. Like that is an accusation that causes people to just see red and completely stop thinking about what's actually going on, which is why it's used, which is why it is like Vladimir Putin's favorite tactic for discrediting his political enemies mm -hmm. um, is ginning up false pedophilia charges and, and stuff like that. And the right wing in this country has learned the same tactic. It complicates discussion in an episode like this, and it makes it very personal that like these accusations are just in the cultural milieu right now. When in fact, like this episode, and in fact, a lot of this plot arc is about actual grooming. Yeah. It is about actually hurting kids this way and what that looks like, both like from the adult perspective who is taking advantage of this relationship and from the kid's perspective who is trying to piece together um, a sense of emotional security around fundamentally unsafe adults. And the problem with this is this episode in particular requires delving into this topic. And I need to make it clear that like what's going on in this show is what this actually looks like. The accusations that are being tossed around in the news, in the political sphere, all of that, those are largely just ginned up falsehoods trying to tear down LGBTQ adults. Um, they want to legislate and uh, mandate us out of existence. And they're doing this by digging up one of the most hateful accusations you can make falsely. And this is nothing new. This is something that LGBTQ folks have dealt with since um, the, in the 60s and 70s. It came, right. back in the, it came back in the 80s under Reagan. It came back um, in the early 2000s under Bush. It's like a 15-year cycle we go through yeah. where they rediscover this attack tactic. I will say this is the highest the temperature has been around this in my entire life. And when we're discussing this on the show, we are not discussing this lightly. Like you cannot have a forthright conversation about this show without this analysis. And also I want to be sensitive to the fact that right now there's a lot of false use of the word grooming that is floating around out there. Yeah. Mic drop, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, but you're absolutely right because so much of the characters, so many characters in this show are affected by various levels and types of abuse. And we see that in two different characters this episode. And we're going to see it in some of the ones that we might not have expected to see it with before later on in this season. And I'm not going to drop those names just yet, but this is not the first or last instance of this that we're going to be talking about or seeing. 
There are other characters who we are much less sympathetic towards who also show the signs of it. <laughs> yeah. And it's important to talk about these things. I'm, in a way, I'm glad that this show touches on these subjects because they are important to talk about. And they are really, they do really capture what it looks like, the different behaviors, the different ways that this trauma is expressed through people and different types of people. Right, because there's no single picture of how you react to a trauma like that. Yeah. And it's worth talking about, I feel. It's extremely difficult, but it's worth talking about. Yeah, we're going to see the entire range of it this season with like characters who respond to it by trying to protect others. Uh, we see it with characters who want to act out upon it. Um, we see it in characters who develop a rebellious streak. I'm thinking mostly of Kozaway there. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing, we see it with characters who turn around and inflict it upon others. And eventually we're going to see somebody who basically reframes it as being their choice and them being in control. Um, we're going to see like the whole range of it. And I think like boiling it down to like a single image of victimhood is too simplistic. And part of, I think what makes this show what it is, is that it takes the time to explore it in so many different ways with so many different characters. Um, yeah. This is the first time, like it was obvious before, like we saw it with Mickey's music teacher, but like, this is, I feel like the episode where we see how far back it really went for this family. Yeah. And it's all all indirect with this one. But if you like, so like if you don't want to see it, you don't have to see it. If you know what to look for, you can't help but see it. Yeah, absolutely. So as for the episode itself, <laughs> um, the, the plot of the episode kicks off. As you, you mentioned earlier, Kozue is on a ledge holding a nest and there's students gathered all around basically waiting for her to fall. Um, there, there's students in the, the classroom telling her to just abandon the nest so that she can save herself. Eventually, Mickey arrives and calls out to her, and that distraction causes her to lose her grip and eventually fall. He catches her, but put a pin in that, like, him calling out to her distracts her and she falls. <laughs> because that is not the last time that's going to happen. She also still sprains her ankle. Like, he catches her, but not quite enough to t uh, save her from any damage. Right. Which I feel like is also symbolic. And so then we have this moment of, like, the audio of gossiping teen girls discussing, like, what happened while we see Mickey carrying Kozue piggyback with Utena and Anthe as they return to the dorms. Although, is it a dorm? Because it straight up looked like their, like, house house. Like a house that their parents bought or lived in or something. I think that it's one of, like, the other normal dorms. Um, for whatever reason, they room together. It, it might be their house. But, like, I know we've seen that before. Like, that entryway. Because that resembles the entryway that we see back in episode 4. 
four, I think it is, where they're all in the room studying. And then Anthony starts playing the piano and they come downstairs. And I think that's the same backdrop. Okay. I could be I could be wrong on that, but I think we're seeing the same room. So that's why I'm thinking that's one of the dorms. But given that Mickey and Kozoe share a room, I think maybe their, their house. <laughs> yeah, I think it's their property because when Anthe and Utena leave, um, Utena starts talking about, do you think this is the Sunlit Garden? Like when they're going out, it looks like through the back and they see the oh, yard. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Good call. Yep. Yeah. So, it, I yeah, I think it's their house, like their childhood home that they grew up in and still live in, which notably is like within the sphere of where the school exists and where its realm of influence exists. I will say in my own defense here, all of the architecture in this city <laughs> looks like it could be on a Tory's campus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I don't think it's, that's why I'm saying it's still within the realm of its um, reach, so to speak. Like wherever their house is, is undoubtedly for me affected by Otori Academy and the magic that it possesses and the reach that it has. Right. And it's the same way with like Wakaba's room and yeah. um, the Curio Estate. Yeah. This fucking school swallowed up a whole town. <laughs> <laughs> like over the years, it just like swallowed up the whole town and became like a Legend of Zelda <laughs> fucking time right. capsule. Have you seen <laughs> have you seen uh Puella Magi Magica Magica? Nope, never have. Okay, well then you're not going to get this reference, but Atori Academy is a witch's labyrinth. And I will leave as an exercise to the listener to figure out who's the witch and whose labyrinth it is and what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> also, Choo Choo is Cube. Anyway. Dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... The, the gossiping girls are all talking about the tree going to be cut down and Kozway leaps to the rescue of these birds. And I think it's noteworthy that there's specifically two birds here. Mm -hmm. So something within Kozway recognizes that like danger to innocence <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and sacrifices herself to, to protect them. And I think that this is one of those like complicated character pieces for Kozway. Because up until now, we have only seen the like destructive codependence of Mickey and Kozway, like the way that they hurt each other in order to stay connected to one another. Um, the way I think I described it was like bound together by barbed wire, you know, like in order to keep that connection between them they will achieve it by the most destructive means to keep one another's attention. Yeah. But here we have a moment that has nothing to do with Mickey, at least on, on its fundamental level. Like there's no guarantee Mickey was going to be the one to come and save her. Right. She just took this action to help these birds. I mean, I, I guess you could make an argument that like, this is some 3d chess shit where like, <laughs> She did this to provoke Mickey to save her. Um, I don't think so, though. Because yeah, like, <laughs> the, the vulnerability that's in her face and voice when she sees him, like, I don't, she wasn't expecting him to be there. Exactly. Exactly. 
no, you, you hit the nail on the head. I don't think she was expecting him to be the one to save her. Yeah. She was expecting to have to save herself. Yeah. Um, 100%. And so I think it stands out like the girls just like gossiping say she seems so cool, but every once in a while she does something weird like this. Yeah. And which shows her true. I mean, to me, that's like her true colors coming through right there. It's like she can't help but try and save something that looks vulnerable. Something right. that's innocent. Right. Like, I think, like, deep down, this is what's showing Kozue's true moral character. Mm-hmm. And the act that she puts on and the way she hurts Mickey. And even, honestly, like, some of the stuff that we saw in the Black Rose saga with, like, her confession in the elevator. Like, I think on some level she's opaque even to herself in that... She is out of touch with her moral center. And, but it's still there. Yeah. Is, is I think the important piece of that. Like right now, she's at a point in her life where she's doing this stuff to protect herself. But underneath it, there is still a, a fundamentally caring and compassionate person. Yeah. And like, I think, but for the trauma, the things that like they say she's cool, but sometimes she's weird. I think the sometimes she's weird part would be a little bit more at the forefront. And weird in this sense is actually being a good person, actually sticking out, sticking herself out for others, um, as opposed to cool, which basically comes from the idea of being so aloof as to be unreadable by the casual observer. Yeah, like detached from everything. I don't give a shit about anything. Like that level of high school cool. Right. And it's one of those things that like while you're in it, you don't see it. But once you grow up a bit, (laughs) you realize like people were like that in high school because they were hurt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They had some real shit going on. Like They didn't want to open up to people or be vulnerable to people because they've been hurt, whether it was by family members, by people in their community, like something happened. A lot of times it's like addiction within families, um, abuse, anything like that. Like Mm -hmm. complicated stuff happens and you're never too young to experience it. And so... But, like, you could be too young to understand it. Yeah. I mean, I'll share, like, a little bit of a personal story here That's that illuminated this for me. And, Autumn, feel free to cut this if you want, if it's too personal. But one of the hardest things that I went through in my life that left me really scarred um, and emotionally messed up was when I was in my early 20s. And I remember dating someone at the time and they remarked to me, oh, you're so mysterious. <laughs> and I, I wanted to laugh so bad <laughs> because I was like, I'm only mysterious because I am so hurt by this thing that happened to me. Like, and that is exactly what Kozue is conveying to me. Yeah. I'm so aloof because I'm so hurt by this thing that happened to me in the past. Yeah. And we didn't discuss it back then, but like in the Black Rose Duel episode, when Kozway is standing up defending Mickey, we see like the same part of her come forward of like, she senses this threat because 
they've been hurt before. Mm-hmm. She she can see quite plainly the threat that the pedo uh, music teacher presents to to Mickey. Yeah, and like being able to like see those signs and others is like often an unwanted gift. <laughs> um, but it is also ultimately a meaningful one to be able to see those signs in other people because then just like with Kozaway, you recognize the need to step up and help. I think Kozaway even calling her and her brother wild animals is indicative of this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, distancing herself from the concept of being human. Mm-hmm. It, that, like, that's that's a, a huge red flag. Well, and then also using the term wild animals to describe oneself, meaning you've had to fight for your survival. Mm-hmm. Like it's both of those things. Distancing yeah. yourself from your humanity and then also indicating you've had to go feral to survive. So I know I said that like, I'd be calling out like when we dip into this topic. I don't know that it's feasible to do that because like <laughs> this entire episode is just dripping with this topic. Um, so we get to, we get back to the house, the the ambiguously located house. And <laughs> they're, they're talking about um, how to care for the birds now that they've been rescued. And Anthe launches into like detailed instructions for how to care for these animals. Anthe turns into a smart home really quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, like she has always kind of given that like Disney princess vibe as far as the weird stuff that happens with animals around her. Um, You know, clearly she keeps enough snails in her, her pencil box to know how to take care of small animals. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah, so, like, she just drops some serious knowledge here on the specifics of what to do to take care of these things. And it catches everyone off guard. Yeah. Uh, Mickey and Utina both comment on it. And, like, Choo Choo, in his own way, comments on it by being silly in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Floating away like a little balloon. It was so cute. And so um, this one is like a bit of a stretch, but go with me on this. To me, Choo Choo being silly in this moment, while Anthe is being all business, I personally get the feeling from this moment that Anthe knows this because taking care of animals, just like the Rose Garden is part of her way of coping with trauma. And so her psyche, choo-choo, needs to keep some levity in the moment because for her, this is somehow like a deadly serious matter. Yeah, I could see that. Well, it's also interesting because she's (laughs) when she's pressed about it, I think Mickey actually asks her like, oh, have you had to do this before? Like, you know a lot about this. She's like, oh, no, I've never had to do this before. And that's why I made the joke about her turning into a smart home, because it's like, (laughs) hey, Google, how do I take care of a bird? You know, like, (laughs) 
but she she tells them so matter of factly that they are like oh you had to have done this before and it's almost like she's just an encyclopedia of knowledge about animals so yeah i would agree she probably has had to do it before and then probably just i don't know, lied about it but Utena even remarks to Choo Choo. She catches Choo Choo as he's like blowing away in his little balloon state and just go whispers to him. That's unusually straightforward for her. Like talking as much as she did about taking care of the birds. To me, it kind of shows Anthe's own growth and like self-assurance just a little bit in taking ownership and giving them this information. Because maybe at the beginning of this whole show, she might not have said anything. I feel like it's Utena's influence on her and her feeling like she is empowered to be herself a little more around her. Mm -hmm. That pushes her to say this. Oh, yeah. To be herself. Yeah. She's in a safe space at the moment. Yeah. What's going to make it unsafe very quickly is she says, well, what we should do is return them to their mother. Yeah. And that is Kozue's cue to leave. Um, Kozue stands up, revealing that she can actually stand on that ankle at the moment, which Anthe comments on, but Kozue is still like, nope, nope, gotta go. And on the way out the door, she spots a letter. And she doesn't even say, is that from mom? She says, is this from that person? Mm-hmm. And I think we have just gotten our hint as to who the abuser in that family was. Um, we find out from a phone call later that um, the letter was from their mother and that their parents are divorced. Um, and so the vitriol in Kozaway's response is so indicative of like whatever happened in that family, whether it was sexual abuse or addiction or what, um, it centers upon their mother as, I think, the primary instigator or the primary perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Because even, like, everything that's happened so far, Kozue has been injured and she still emotionally feels safe until this letter arrives. Right, because even in previous encounters with Kozue... Before, I feel like she would have objected to Anthe's being there. She doesn't say a single thing about that this time. So she that, to me, is her indicator of feeling a little bit safer. She doesn't feel as threatened by Anthe. She feels like she has some control in the situation or she still has her brother's like attention primarily. And you're right. It's not until the mother comment is mentioned and not even hers just, Oh, we should return the birds to their mother. That she's like, all right, I gotta go. I'm, I'm done here. Yeah. And we see in this moment that like by seeing the letter, Kozue has this reminder that their mother can still reach them. Even in a Tori Academy as separate from the world as this space is, she can still reach into this world and touch them. And her sense of safety goes out the window, and so she has to leave. Yeah. And then that's when she says, we don't need parents. We're wild animals, after all. And Mickey, like, kind of chastises her for it. But she just gives Utena and Anthe this grin and then throws the letter from their mother away. And Utena's shocked, which, like, I understand <laughs> Utena's feelings on this because she's like, you know, I don't have any parents. 
why would you throw a letter from your mom away? Right. But she doesn't know the context, you know? Yeah. Like the two of them are sandpaper to each other on this issue. Yeah. Um, Because like for Utena, the concept of having a mother is like so prime that it doesn't even matter if she's a bad mom. To Utena, that's still better than no mom. Yeah. And Kozue's attitude is, girl, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they leave the house and they're talking about uh, the sunlit garden itself. Like Utena asks, do you think this is actually the garden? Because they, they see it as they're walking out of the house. And Anthe says something kind of cryptic here about the garden always having been in Mickey's mind. Yeah. And Uchin is like, well, no, like he's actually talked about the the actual garden with the piano and all that stuff. But this one's gone to seed. And Anthe again comes back with like, now it just exists in his memory. Yeah. And she says, Utena says, maybe you're right, but I was expecting something more. Before we get to the next piece, the next episode, not next episode, but next piece of the episode, this scene, it's so short in comparison to the rest of the episode. But this scene is one of the most fascinating pieces of this episode to me, because in every episode, I, as the new viewer, am unraveling from here on out, what is real, what has really happened, and what has been planted in someone because of the shit that we've seen with Mikage and how <laughs> I'm dead serious and how Anthe and Akio, well, Akio used Anthe and her magic to fuck with his memory and his mind. So when this first unfolded, I was like, did this did the memory of them like does is the the memory that mickey holds so dear even real or is it just planted in his mind to get him to duel to get him to be a pawn in the game that akio is playing and at this point i don't know because it really could go either way mickey seems so insistent that it's real but Anthe's cryptic answers here of the sunlit garden existed in his mind and it's just a memory now make me question what is real and what has been planted. So this is where I'm going to get a little personal. Sure. Um, as somebody who's experienced this, I think it's important to like in this analysis in like trying to puzzle this out. I think it's important to to bear in mind that like when someone is manipulating your memory this way, there is always a nugget of truth. Like there is always something that did actually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like you were physically present for it, you know? Like um, <laughs> Right. But like the way that it comes out is that um that memory is then twisted like there's a piece of it that is exaggerated or pieces that are left out of the retelling in a very Mm -hmm. specific way in order to twist and pervert the memory into something that serves somebody else um but like it's important to remember some parts of this actually did happen 
Like that is the substrate upon which the foundation for the lie is built. You know, like yeah, it, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, like if this, if the Sunlit Garden didn't actually exist at one time, if they didn't actually play the piano, then like the core of the image that is used to manipulate these kids is then just arbitrary and. You could just as easily have put Utana in Mickey's role if, like, their entire memories of fabrication, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's that, like, the actual incident that happened and the core memory about it is the clay which is used to sculpt the lie. Yeah, I could see that. I could see how, like, yes, it they did play the piano together when they were young, but it's more that. Mickey's viewing of it has been warped, not in a negative way, but it's like putting a rose-colored glasses filter of nostalgia over that memory. Right. And yes. exaggerating it. And like you said, leaving out maybe some key key parts. And like Mickey leaves out the part that Kozue wasn't enjoying herself. Yeah. Or like, or rather that Kozue enjoyed spending time with him she did not enjoy playing the piano specifically mm -hmm. crossway's memory leaves out that she actually did learn how to play the piano to some level she may not have been good but like she wasn't just sitting there on the bench watching him play and then thinking that like they were playing together you know like <laughs> um yeah but yeah so like this all is i think secondary to what was actually going on in the family, which is why the yeah. Sunlit Garden becomes the focus. Like, that's the safe memory to think about as compared to the unsafe ones, which involve whatever went down between their parents and the two of them. Such that now, today, at Atori Academy, the only people that each of them can rely upon is one another. Yeah. So... Then we have, when Utina says, I was expecting something more, the show does one of my favorite editing techniques in using pre-lap sound, where a character asks a question in one scene, and a different character answers the exact same question in a different scene. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen like any of Adam Reed's shows, uh, like Archer, it's like, his favorite technique. <laughs> um, he uses it constantly throughout every episode. Um, but personally, I just love this editing technique. And so Utana makes this statement of, I was expecting something more, but it's Akio who responds to this statement because Anthe repeated it for him. Yes. Which is the other key thing that this episode points out which is that Akio is having Anthe report back on their outings together, on what Utina says and does. And like this entire conversation between Anthe and Akio is taking place over the visual of Anthe in the scene with Utina. And mm -hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to point this out, like her eyes are not obscured while she's watching Utina in the scene itself. And I think that this is showing us that even though she's reporting back to Akio, 
Akio's purpose in wanting to know this information is not the same reason Anthe is observing Utena this way. Like, yes, she is reporting back to him, but I think this moment is showing us that she is watching Utena for her own reasons at this point. Yeah. Like, she has transitioned from being part of the dueling game to being interested in Utena for her own sake. And the look Utena gives her and that she is staring wide-eyed back at is, I wrote down, it's something like love. It's just very soft as as Utena is asking about and talking about the Sunlit Garden and says, I was expecting it to be something more. I personally think Utena was expecting it to be something a little bit more evident, maybe of the bond that Mickey has talked about with Kozue. Sure. Something a little bit more cherished is my interpretation, even though she still looks at it and Anthe with this softness because she acknowledges it for what it is. But Anthe doesn't give that piece to Akio, doesn't answer or remark on what Utena looked like as she was saying this, just the words that she was saying. And when he asks her about it, like, what did she mean? Anthe just says, even I don't know. Yeah. And he reacts to this by asking directly, well, what do you think of her? Because I think he's picking up on something. Yeah. Right. Like he knows that even though she's still physically spying for him, emotionally, she's not engaged anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, specifically, poor word choice. She's not... uh, fully buying into what they're doing anymore. She is still literally engaged to Utena. And he demands that she tell him more. And when she hesitates, this is again where I refer to the use of force. He grabs her and pulls her down to his level. She ends up knocking the teacup on the table to the ground in all of this. And that's when Utena comes in. Yeah. And she came in at a key time for both their sakes. Because she interrupted it before it could get any worse. Uh, however, when she does come in and she sees that like Akio's sitting on the couch relaxed. And, and, and he's he feels that he's in complete control of the situation. You can tell. Like he is just exuding his same charisma There's no hint of, like, something just went down, something's wrong. There's no hint of that. He's relaxed on the couch, arms spread wide, and Anthe's on the ground picking up the pieces of the broken teacup, and her her eyes are shielded by her hair. And Utena goes, uh, am I interrupting some private brother-sister thing? (laughs) Because she's an only child. And lost her parents at a very young age. So she's, again, this highlights that she's very unfamiliar with how families actually interact and whether or not this is normal. And throughout the rest of this conversation, even though it is brief, Anthe's eyes are still hidden. I don't think she wanted Utena to see. Yeah. And uh, also in Utena's defense, like, she's 14. Yeah, that too. Like, when you're a kid, it's not often, like, even 
in Utena's unique case of being orphaned, but like in general, as a kid, you don't always have a whole lot of insight into how other families work. Yeah. Like you can have very close friends and not know a thing about how their family operates behind closed doors. Yeah. And so it's not strange for someone that young to not really know what is or isn't normal aside from like being able to compare it to their own family. And Utena just simply has no family of her own to compare it to, which of course like begs the question who the fuck's raised her for the last eight years or whatever. But that's (laughs) a totally different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And this highlights that again, all of this is orchestrated by Akio. Like I don't for one minute think that this is accidental that he had Utena move in on like of course he did it on purpose but like this just shows that like he is able to control the situation in ways that people other people don't even think of because he is still very much in control here and he knew that Utena wasn't gonna be like this is weird or call him out because she doesn't know any better and he's taking advantage of that fact on every level and this is another one of those tactics of drawing her in inappropriately closely by referring to her as being practically family he knows that that is a vulnerable position for her to be in he knows that he is addressing a fundamental insecurity that utana has and he is using it to pull her in yeah and we transition immediately to the bedroom where Utna and Anthe are processing their their day and like what just happened. And she comments on the fact that he said this. And Anthe apologizes on his behalf that like, yeah, he didn't ask you about that first. So that was probably not cool. And Utna's response is, no, actually, I liked it. I never had a family. So, um, you know, like, it made her happy. And Anthe says something really odd here, which is that Akio is more like her father than her brother. Yeah. And part of me is like, I get why she says this in that with their like relative ages and, you know, whatever has happened that has left them as relying on each other. Like there's a parallel there with Mickey and Kozue of like whatever is going on with Akio and Anthe on some level they really only have each other like whatever is going on with the dueling game whatever is going on with Atori Academy Kanae is an outsider the actual chairman is an outsider Utna is an outsider the family unit is just those two everyone else is an interloper And as much as they don't like each other and distrust each other, there is a bond there that Utena can't supersede. Like, no matter what Anthe's feelings for her are, Utena can't supersede the bond that she has with Akio because it's simply older. It it, it goes much deeper. Um, And Kanae certainly cannot replace Anthe. Yeah. So, like, whatever is going on here, there's that. But, like, I don't get the father thing on the level of, like, 
we never see any sort of raising or mentorship or anything like that from him toward Anthe. And it also hits a little weird knowing what I know about how they came to the position they're in right now. So I don't know how true this statement is either. (laughs) The only thing that I could really glean from it, like why she could potentially feel that way, is the authority and control that he has over her. Right. Some people would associate authority and control with a father figure. So that's, that's the stretch that I could see, is just the authority piece of it. Where he's always really, it seems like he's always really dictated her life while they've been at Otori Academy. Yeah. Which God knows how long that's been. And Utana asks the saddest question to ever fall out of somebody's face. Do you think parents really care for kids the way Mickey and Kozue talk about? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yes, Utana, they, they actually really do. And it sucks that you lost yours because like, that is a real thing. Parents actually do care for their kids. Um, and well, that is the tragedy of losing parents. And again, we return to my question from before. Who the fuck has been raising Utina for the last six or eight years? <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's even sadder is Anthe's response, which is just, oh, they probably just do that because of genetics. Yeah, like, how cynical is that? uh, Yeah. (laughs) And Utena just says, that's a harsh way to put it. And Anthe apologizes. And interestingly, Utena just says, you don't have to apologize. And that, I feel like, is something that means so much to Anthe. There's like a brief little moment where we watch that for a little bit before moving on to the next scene. There's a little pause on that moment. So it's not necessarily a view that I hold, but this is one of the moments that I think um, really captures why some fans uh, read autism into Anthe's character. Hmm. Specifically, like, the rejection sensitivity in this moment, but also, like, the matter of factness um, where like I described it as being cynical, but there is another read of this scene, which is that she's just being matter of fact. Like this is just a factual thing. It's not really an emotional one. Like, well, yeah, of course parents care for their kids. That's just genetics. That's like how species propagate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like the lack of emotion in that statement doesn't necessarily reflect a lack of emotion in her person. Just that like the topic itself on the level she's discussing it is purely factual. Um, Utana asked an intellectual question. She gave an intellectual answer. Um, And I can definitely like see that reading of her character this way. Um, And especially in the way that like Anthe thinks she needs to apologize for having stated it that way. And her reaction to Utena's reassurance also um, like the idea that Anthe has misread this social cue that like, mm-hmm. Oh, this wasn't actually an intellectual question. It was in fact an emotional one. It was just phrased in a way that sounded like an intellectual question. 
And the idea that like Anthe missed that and now has to apologize for it, but then is reassured like, no, 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 you're fine. <laughs> you know? Um, so like, I, I think that people who read Anthe this way aren't just like making it up. Like there is something no. there to it. Yeah. Um, but I like, kind of read it yeah. as like, I kind of read it as informed by trauma. Because That's I could where I go with Anthe also, but yeah. Yeah. Continue. Because I could see an interaction like that taking place between her and Akio. And when Akio says something and she says, sorry, there's often a much different response that he has to her apologizing, which is either force or abuse that we've seen so far. Because she's apologized to him before. Yeah. I would also want to point out here that, like, those things aren't mutually exclusive either. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> autism and trauma kind of go hand in hand because, like, normal, ordinary social situations can end up becoming traumas for autistic folks because, like, the consequences of getting them wrong can be dire for some people. And so yeah. uh, misreading social cues, misreading safety cues uh, can lead to a level of victimization. And this is going like even beyond what is done to like, quote unquote, socialize uh, autistic folks. Um, so like these are in no way mutually exclusive readings either. Oh, yeah. So then we have the student council meeting and today's theme is chairs. <laughs> <laughs> um everybody is sitting in a different kind of chair and nanami our queen is sitting in a giant <laughs> massage chair <laughs> she is totally blissed out barely paying attention to the conversation at hand like she has to like check in and be like wait you're talking about my brother what <laughs> yeah um so a letter from the end of the world has arrived and Jury makes reference to the fact that Sionji hated the duels, or I think it's Mickey, makes reference to Sionji hated the duels, but did it anyway. And Jury responds, uh, it's actually it's Toga's behavior that concerns me. And this is where Nanami's ears perk up because like, oh, you're talking about my brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they say that the letter from the end of the world states to defeat Utena for the good of the duelists. And this sparks something in Mickey the way that the letter from mom sparked something in Kozway. This is what gets Mickey's hackles up. He says, adults who tell you something is for your own good can't be trusted. That sentiment is pure trauma. Like, yeah, it's very telling. Yeah, like a child should be able to trust at least a good portion of what adults say. And it may not always feel this way in the moment, but like as you grow up and reflect on it, some of the things that you were told for your own good were actually for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> because kids just simply don't always understand inherent danger in things that they do. Right. Um, and so the idea that like, Anyone who ever says this to you cannot be trusted. To me, this is the red flag that 
whoever hurt Mickey used that line. Mm -hmm. They used that line to get Mickey into a vulnerable state to say, trust me, this is for your own good. So again, like we circled back to the topic of child abuse. So we're going to be talking about this for a little bit again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like this bit with Mickey, like, you could you could be excused if you didn't catch on that Mickey was also a victim. Like with all the stuff we've been talking about and Kozue's response, Kozue's actions during the Black Rose saga, um, Mickey seemingly missing the danger cues of the music teacher you know you wouldn't be faulted for not picking up on the fact that mickey is also a victim this this moment right here wraps it up and puts a bow on it like something has happened to mickey also kozue and mickey cling to one another despite the way they hurt one another because on some level they are still the only ones that the other trusts yeah they went through some hell together but they did it together and now they only have each other mm -hmm. and it culminates in mickey saying if dueling means letting some selfish adult use me i won't do it this also points to him believing that the end of the world is an adult yeah which fair i would think it's an adult too if i were them because to the teenage perspective or even just the perspective of any child lots of adults seem omniscient sure so why wouldn't the end of the world be one and like we also see it with mickey's music where the pressure put on him to perform and to be a performance genius i think also plays into all of this dynamic with him because in the end it's just another example of adults expecting things from him and the fact that his entire purpose for being here is to find his quote unquote shining thing. Like everyone wants him to be a musical genius. He still does it. Like he still performs, but what he's looking for is the joy in doing it again. Yeah. And the idea that like, he is so good that he can joylessly do what other people can only hope to aspire to. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think also, at least it reminds me of like child stars or yeah. other child prodigies of some kind, um, you know, pageant kids, all the ways that like adult level performance expectations get pushed down onto younger and younger kids, warps their development, warps their perception of themselves and warps their sense of value. Like, who would Mickey be without his music? I don't think Mickey knows. Right. Absolutely. And and that's part of his trauma. <laughs> yeah. like, And he is trying to figure out what will bring him joy. What is his shining thing? He keeps pushing it off onto Anthe. But like, what is it about Anthe that draws him? You know? Right. And Mickey, I feel like, is the character who probably goes the the least distance down their development arc um i think partly because like what he desires is so diffuse and difficult to define to begin with like what makes you happy um that's a moving target for a person's entire life 
Yeah. But um, at the same time, like, I think the fact that that's what he's looking for also hints at, like, the shape of his trauma. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. There are two things that I want to point out from the student council scene before we move on. One is just that how weird it is that the student council blindly accepts whatever their room looks like, what changes have been made from all the way from a baseball game happening in the background to this with all the chairs splayed out everywhere. Part of me wonders, do they just like forget or not realize that it's different every time? Like, do they come into, did they come into this student council room and just go, oh yeah, it's always been like this. Are, have they accepted the magical realism? Is something like keeping them from fully realizing that like this shouldn't be happening? I don't know. The other thing that I want to point out with this that I think is really interesting is there's a shot drawn of Jury who's, uh, we're looking at her from the side as she's talking and all the way in the background is the archway into like the elevator. And there's a single chair facing the audience lit in the background. And the rest of it is darkness. You don't even see the elevator. I thought that was really weird. And I don't know (laughs) if that's supposed to symbolize like somebody listening in and watching. If that's supposed to symbolize like Akio's um, uh, in the end of the world's um, omnipresence and omniscience. Um, I don't know if that's supposed to be like, that's supposed to be Toga's seat. I don't know. But I just wanted to point it out here because, again, everything that this show does visually is done for a reason. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing that happens is Nanami uh, points out, like, who knows? Maybe the end of the world is a nice daddy long leg spider. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just calls him daddy long legs. And that's going to come back. Um, Yeah. So we cut to Mickey looking at the stump of the tree that was cut down to that had the nest in it that Kozue saved. And again, we have this prelapse sound of the next shot where he is talking to his father on the phone and he's reassuring his dad that like, no, we're not against it. Referring to his dad remarrying, which also hints like, Okay, they got divorced. Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah, this was all in mother's letter. Um, He apologizes that they won't be able to make it to the wedding. And he refers to he refers to the new woman as their new mother. And presumably, like his dad asks if she would like to speak to Mickey on the phone. And we have a shot of the father sitting down on the phone about to hand the phone to, of all people, Anthe in her bride dress. And she says, it would be weird to call myself mother so soon. So whatever bizarre thing is happening here, this remarriage and like all of this stuff that has led up to this letter being sent, this is a, <laughs> this actually is one of the 3D chess schemes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is. Where, like, Anthea is now posing as somebody who has wrapped 
Mickey's father around her finger to the point where they're going to get married. So I read this as one of two things. One, Anthea is using whatever magical power she has to turn Akio into Mickey's dad. And they're just like making that shit up on the phone. Like that's actually Akio sitting in the chair. Yes, I do think that is the most likely scenario, but I'm glad you said it. So continue. What's your second idea? The second one is that Akio just sent Anthe to wherever the fuck his dad or their dad is and just had her manipulate him with magic right then and there. But I do think I agree that this is a 3D chess move on Akio's part where he has manipulated this situation in its entirety. I don't think that letter was actually from their mother. I think it's something that he staged and that this is the second part of it, which is that, oh, it's their dad calling to talk about uh, getting remarried. Because I'm sorry, but what parent does not want their children in their wedding and is okay with oh, I'm sorry, we can't make it. No, 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 no. That never would be happening. <laughs> I think it's never. whichever parent would send their kids to a Tory Academy, a place that exists in a bubble outside of time with a chairman who like somehow controls everything in like a weird, omni- omniscient, omnipotent way. And... <laughs> <laughs> like I, I think it also speaks a little bit to the class part of this too, where um above a certain income tier, you don't raise your kids. Somebody else yeah. does. The help yep. does. You know, and so sending them to boarding school, which is what a Tory Academy is, uh, is just like what you do. And of course, your children wouldn't be at the wedding. They're busy off at school. You know, like that part to me doesn't seem as weird. Just because of like the class bullshit that goes on at Atori Academy, that is just like baked into the academy. Yeah, I still think it's Akio. I can see that, but I still think it's Akio that's manipulated this whole situation. I think it's all fake. I think it's bullshit. I don't think their uh, Mickey's and Kozue's dad is actually getting remarried. I don't think their mom sent that letter. I think it was all manipulated by him. To get Mickey to be the next duelist. Because that's what he wanted at the very beginning of right. this episode. For sure. And so then we have um, Mickey playing the piano and Kozue hanging out outside. And she has happened upon by Nanami, of all people, who asks, I thought you were hurt. you know. And Kozue is like, we wild animals heal very quickly. And... Nanami tries to chastise her for being out after curfew. And Kozu is like, I'm waiting for somebody. I have a date with Daddy Longlegs. Bringing back the thing that Nanami just said. <laughs> and also, I mean, okay, this is this is the long stretch for me of this episode. But this is actually kind of tying in what Anthe said about Akio being like a father. And then them calling him Daddy Long Legs because he do have long legs, but like this is the long stretch for me, <laughs> where I'm like, here it is tied all together, Daddy Long Legs himself. You absolutely hate to see it, <laughs> right? And yeah, because like it's Akio, he rolls up, and the two of them walk off together. Interestingly, though, before they do, Kozue says, "Do you want me to introduce you to him?" To Nanami. 
Right. And Nami's like, what? No. <laughs> so then we cut to the inside of that same room that we were seeing from through the window. Because like, the, this is such a cool shot because all of this stuff with Nanami, we can see Nikki inside the music room playing the piano. Now we cut to the interior of that room and it's Toga visiting Mickey. And just like in the, the previous episode with Sionji, Toga is now Akio's handmaiden. Um, he is about to uh, shepherd Mickey into... Um, he is about to shepherd Mickey into like this initiation with Akio. And he has this like wind up duck that he sets down on the ground and lets it just walk forward. And they're having the conversation about like, so I heard you said you were giving up dueling, um, which again echoes the conversation that he had with Sionji, who also said he was giving up the dueling game. And he says, there are things you can only possess by taking them. And the duck bumps into a leg of the piano and he says, oh, we've reached an impasse. Mm -hmm. In this case, referring to like the way in which Mickey says he wants this shining thing. He wants Anthe. And Toga is saying, well, you can only get that by taking her by force. But you just said you have no intention of doing that. So which is it, buddy? And then we, we get into like the ritual of uh, can't you hear it? And uh, honestly, like as awful as all of this is, like the way this shot is framed, the way they do this with Toga, I do kind of get chills just like from the energy of the scene. <laughs> Yeah. Like they actually do make it really appealing. Like you understand why these characters are drawn in by this this act. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that Ikuhara does really well. And also I think it's a drawback for this show itself being something that can be understood by its target audience for what it is. Like that's the hard part because this is what this abuse dynamic looks like. It is appealing on its face. And if you don't know what to look for, it is perilously easy to mistake this for something actually really cool. Yeah. So like I also that's the part okay. that like doesn't always work for the show with its target audience. It, like it asks, I think a little bit too much for vo folks who don't understand it. Um, at the same time, like that means it also works just for casual enjoyment. Cause like all this stuff that we've been talking about that entire layer, you don't actually have to understand it to enjoy the show, but you also aren't getting the show without like at least knowing that layer exists. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that at no point does Mickey call Toga out for disappearing and then like not really giving a shit about the student council and like what's going on. I think maybe it's because he's so caught off guard and like swept up in the moment, but I would have thought to like Toga's whole thing of like oh, you've given up on being a duelist. I honestly expected Mickey to be like, why the fuck do you care? 
You don't show up for, <laughs> but really, like, you don't show up for student council meetings anymore. Nanami's running this shit. Right. <laughs> but I think you're right in that he's too caught up in the allure of this thing that Toga's presenting. So then we get the car scene. And this time it's Kozue in the passenger seat. And she tells Mickey that um, she's on a date with Akio. And so like all of these, these two prior scenes now come together in this one scene. Uh, Like she didn't just like magically appear there. He did pick her up. (laughs) And like, we see that in the prior scene and um, we see that she's on board with this speech that, that she gives she breaks it down for mickey of like you love anthe right then make her yours do what you have to do and mickey is skeptical and kozoi just reminds him like all i want is for you to be happy and she says i was always honest with my feelings i never lie which i think is actually true i can't think of pretty much any character who wears their emotionality so openly as Kozue, like she's not ashamed of anything she says or does. Yeah. She is exactly who she looks like on the, on the surface, which is like a really uncommon thing. And it's a really endearing quality in a character, even for characters as like complicated and possibly unpleasant as Kozue. At the very least, like, you know exactly what you're getting with her. Yeah. And then she says the thing. Akio said it's for your own good. And predictably, like, Mickey does not respond well to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then Kozue, like, immediately cuts him off with, like, when everything is impure, you have to become impure yourself to get what you want. And this right here is Kozue telling on herself about, like, how she has responded to the abuse. So again, we're going to be getting into that conversation for a little bit here. With the way she phrases this, this is another way of recognizing abused youth is the way that Kozue, at her age, so fully embraces like an adult level of sexuality, in a sense, like reveals how at some point she has been forced to come to terms with this because of something someone else has done to her. Yeah. Like this is how she has come back to inhabit her body after it has been used by somebody else. Like she recognizes, Oh, this is the part of me that has value. And so she's coaching Mickey on like, you just go with it because that's what works for her. That's how she copes with, how she was treated is this is how the world is. You just go with it. And if you try to hang on to this idea of purity, you just wind up in this place of shame and self-loathing, you know? And so her reaction to it is lean into it. Well, and we've talked about the car being a metaphor for sex and the three of them are in this car. Toga notably is nowhere to be seen. It's just the three of them. And her saying next, the only way to get what you want is to lose your purity. It's like that, the car, her trauma, his trauma, Mm -hmm. all wrapped up into one thing. But he still doesn't see it that way. 
he does not agree because of that part of him that does not trust adults. Mm-hmm. But then he gets the vision. He sees himself driving the car. He sees himself in the position of power and Anthe in the seat next to him. And suddenly something clicks for him. He gets the appeal now. He realizes, oh, I can be in, in the driver's seat. I don't have to be the victim. I don't have to be the passive one. If I reach out and grab it, I can have the power here. And like, this is that dark side of toxic masculinity that like fostering that temptation, you know, of like teaching boys, you can use force to get what you want. And like, that is ultimately what the duels are. Yeah, absolutely. They are teaching them. You can have what you want. You just have to take it. You don't have to wait for Anthony to give it to you. You can just take it. And it's like, that's like that is reading much further than what I think this scene is going for. But I think that is the ultimate message of that strain of masculinity is like you have something you want. You have to go out and take it. And it is explicit in this scene. But that is the implicit message given to boys in not just our culture, but Japan also. It, that is the, the message given to boys is like, don't just wait for it, take it. And if that's a person, take them, you know? And yeah. so um, just like we saw with Sionji, we are now seeing Mickey being explicitly drawn into the fold of if you want to be a particular kind of man, this is what that looks like. This is the action that requires. But interestingly, when Mickey comes out of that vision that he's been given, he puts pieces together and realizes that Akio is the one that's been interfering with the council. He, re- he, he doesn't even get to say it, but he realizes or he thinks that Akio is the end of the world. And I mean, this whole time I've been inclined to agree with him. It almost feels like a red herring because the show is has gotten to the point where they're so heavy handed with it in this arc. But it, it's like it has to be him. <laughs> <laughs> it has to, especially given the contents of the letter that was just sent to the student council of like, you have to defeat Utena. He wants them to defeat her. I don't think he wants her around for too long. He wants to use her. But he doesn't want her around for too long because he's a danger because she's a danger to what he has with Anthe, what control he has over Anthe. He's starting to see that. So he wants her taken out, I think. Right. There's a second part of that that I am just like aching to to point out, but we're not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Like that is definitely one of his motivations is to cast Utena down because of what she represents to Anthe. There is more to it, and I cannot wait to dive into it, but we're not there yet. So the next scene is Kozue and Mickey building the nesting box um, to replace the tree. And Utena shows up, and because, like, at this point in the show, she's 
pretty much, I think, genuinely friends with Mickey. Yeah. She has no expectation of what comes next, which is they stand up and they are standing posed side by side in exactly the same way that Utna and Anthe are in the dueling arena as duelist and bride. And Mickey offers Utna a rose and challenges her to a duel. And, and of course, like, uh, Utna is like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's, every time this happens with Mickey, she gets a little devastated. I don't blame her. Right. It's a, it's a betrayal every time. Because, like, Mickey is the one that you're always cheering for of, like, I thought you were better than this. I thought you were. Yeah. I thought you were better than treating women the way Toga and Sionji do. And every time Mickey fails that test, like he is still just as enmeshed with this mindset as any of the other boys. Yeah. And then that leads us to the Shadow Girls. This one is entirely about gambling. Uh huh. Um, one of the Shadow Girls is playing roulette and wants to bet her entire purse on black. The other one's like, you could just quit. You've lost a lot already. And again, the wheel spins. It comes up on red, so she has lost everything. And <laughs> we have this image of one of them holding an apple on a string in front of the other, like dangling this apple in front of them to lead them onward. The way you do like with a horse and a carrot or a mule and a carrot, you know, like that kind of thing, that imagery. Mm -hmm. And while she's doing this, she says, I thought you said you hate gambling and would never do it. And she says, it's all your fault for making me try it. I think this is one of the most on the nose shadow girl shadow plays that we ever see in the series. We have this character, Mickey, who keeps protesting like he's not doing this he refuses to do this then at like the slightest tempting dives full into it yeah and then condemns it on the backside he is so blinded to his own actions like there's no accountability taking here he is the sweet one he is the kind one he is the nice one but he is a nice guy capital and capital G TM. <laughs> he is the nice guy of a Tory Academy. At the end of the day, he is still buying into this toxic masculine ideal of participating in the dueling game, taking what he wants. And even though he pays lip service to rejecting it, he, just like Sionji, can't escape it. He cannot bring himself to actually refuse to duel. And so, yeah, he, I mean, so he blames people around him. Yeah. And the end of the Shadow Girls um, session of the episode ends with the coin uh, that's taken from gambling, calling the one walking away, going to get more money to gamble a sucker. And that's exactly what Mickey is, is he gets sucked into these things so quickly. He cannot stand by what he says even if he believes it on some level he still gets sucked in yep so interesting thing with the duel this is one of the duels that takes place in like the usual order of things like this is one of the more orderly duels in that the swords get drawn and the music starts and the duel happens as opposed to like 
some fighting takes place, then some swords get drawn, then the music starts. Like this is one of like the formula duels. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is noteworthy that like Mickey tends to have that. Mickey's duels yeah. tend to follow the like what should take place. Um, as opposed to like the Nanami duels, which are just pure fucking chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're like fighting after the bell. Uh, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like two swords. <laughs> like it, it's. Um, <laughs> but no, like as one of the fencers, his duel is a very orderly, very prescribed one. Um Interestingly, we get to see Kozue acting as the bride. And so now that we have seen the new format of the sword being drawn from the duelist, now the duelists need a bride. And so Kozue is Mickey's bride. Yeah, it's really interesting. I thought maybe it was this way because of the nature of their relationship, what they've been through, and that it's always just the two of them. It made sense for the two oh, yeah. of them to be together. For sure. So hadn't thought of it being a formula. It'll be interesting to see if that continues and what it looks like. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's kind of a mirror of what we saw with the Black Rose. Yeah. Where each of the, the Black Rose duelists drew their sword from their victim. Now... Oh, okay. Now what we have, like, so um, Kozue drew Mickey's sword in order to use it herself. Now, as his bride, Kozue is drawing Mickey's sword so that he can duel with it. Mm -hmm. So we have, like, an inversion of that. And, again, like, Utena has her sword drawn out of her following her encounter with Mikage. So, like, when she was dueling Sionji for the first time after fighting Mikage, you know, we see that happen. Um, right. Now it's her sword being drawn, which, again, just puts me back in a place of, now I want to know what would have happened if Utena rode in that elevator. <laughs> <laughs> or, in this case, if Anthe had ridden in that elevator and then drew the sword from Utena. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Um. It's too bad we never get that. I understand why we never get that, but it, it'd be fun to think about. It would be fun to write a fan fiction about somebody write that fan fiction and send it to us. <laughs> um, so in this scene, Kozue is riding around in, in Akio's car around the arena and like it drives around on the wall of the arena, which the arena didn't used to have a wall before, but now it does so that it, that they can race around on it. Um, and <laughs> interestingly enough, there's nobody driving. We cut away, we cut back, and now Anthe is in the car with her. Again, Anthe isn't driving either. In a sense, the duelists are driving the car. Like the car now becomes a metaphor for the duel itself. And Kozue's actions here are pretty intense. Like, this goes back to that sexualization piece that I mentioned earlier. She starts to almost seduce Anthe by saying, like, they say that those engaged to you get amazing power. 
And she says she wants that power. She wants to see it. And she starts leaning over in the car until she's actually like on top of Anthe about to what looks like kiss her. And the entire time, Anthe just has that like glassy eyed stare. She is fully passive in this in this encounter. And it's like actually just seeing in full each of their reactions to trauma. Kozue responds to her trauma by acting out towards others, in this case, specifically in a sexual way. Anthe responds to her trauma being triggered by shutting down. She goes into, quote unquote, bride, Rose Bride mode. Like her brain is on standby. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She is fully dissociated in this moment. Mickey sees this happening and is trying to call out to her while fighting Utena. And Kozue is like, pay attention or you'll lose. And sure enough, he does. Like, this is the callback to the scene with the, the bird nest at the beginning of he is now distracted by Kozue. So at first, he distracts Kozue by calling out to her and she loses her grip and falls. Mm-hmm. He calls out to Kozue because her actions are now so obvious and over the line that they distract him and he loses the duel. So it seems that his, if we're talking about trauma responses, his was to kind of freak out and be like, what are you doing? I don't recall seeing uh, Utena react. She kind of doesn't. Like, all of her shots are pretty much her standard dueling moves yeah. up to and including, you know, the power of Dios coming down and her classic sword swipe. Um, other than that, like she has actually a very little, she has very little to do with the outcome of this duel. <laughs> yeah. Um, this one was always about the twins mm-hmm. and it is their dynamic that determines the outcome of the duel. Not Utena. Like Utena, her presence is perfunctory. She she is there as the one who's engaged to the Rose Bride. All she has to do is show up and wait for the power of Dios to come. Everything else is playing out between the two of them. So then finally, in the follow-up to this, Kozue encounters Mickey, and the only thing she says to him is to condemn him as a coward. Yeah. Yeah, there was kind of a in the aftermath of the duel, they do that same over- conversation overlay thing again, where Utena is talking to Anthea about Mickey being surprised about like him doing that. And she says, but Mickey is more, and Anthea asks, more what? And yeah, then it's overlaid on this encounter between Mickey and Kozue, and Mickey on a ladder doing something with the birdhouse and Kozue walking past him. And yeah, she just calls him a coward. So this is where I'm going to take a moment and talk about a concept called the patriarchal bargain, Mm. which if you've never heard of this before, patriarchal bargain refers to the way in which women help enforce patriarchy upon one another in order to borrow some of an associated man's power. So this is where like women attack other women to enforce like gender roles specifically because it makes them quote unquote, one of the good ones to the men around them. 
And they get the benefit of men trusting them as a woman who will help, you know, enforce the rules of patriarchy. What we see, I think, with Kozue in this moment, Mickey loses the duel. He does not, even though he tries, he does not actually take Anthe. And one of the things I think that we have come to over the course of the series is an understanding that the duels are more psychological than physical. That if he actually, truly wanted to take her away, he probably could have. Kozue condemning him as a coward for not taking Anthe, I think is part of that patriarchal bargain piece that the only way to frame him as a coward for not taking possession of a woman as an object is yourself to have so bought into that mindset of what masculinity should be, like what an ideal man should be. Rather than recognizing that Mickey doesn't want to be that on some level, which is also, side note, like where people read like some trans mask stuff into Mickey, but that's a whole other can of worms. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of trans readings of like all the characters on the show and like they all have different grounding. Um, we really haven't discussed that much <laughs> at all on, on this podcast, but like it's all there. But like the fact that Mickey keeps trying to protest against this shows that like, at least on some level, he doesn't want to be that kind of man. The fact that no. he keeps getting roped into it is more a testament to like how powerful that cultural programming is. Yeah. As opposed to like any individual person's character strength in resisting it. Um, with enough cultural pressure, most people will cave to most things. That, that's just how that works. Like, you could, and yes, everyone is still individually responsible for their personal actions, but like when you're within an environment that constrains your choices, it's hard to blame someone for not being imaginative enough to somehow dream up a third option that circumvents the deleterious cultural programming that will make them hurt other people. You know, like, and so like in Mickey's case, he doesn't follow through. He doesn't win. He cannot fully commit to taking Anthe. So Kozway calls him a coward. And that is just like one more, one more poke, one more prod of like, you are not the right kind of man. Yeah. And in Mickey's defense here, he is still like, what, 14 years old? Yeah. Give or take a year. Yeah. He's still very much a teenager, a child, that feeling and that societal pressure is so compounded when you are a teenager and figuring out who you are, even into young adulthood and adulthood for some people. That pressure is so compounded and culminating in a feeling of like struggle that I feel Mickey really encapsulates well here of struggling with who maybe he wants to be and like you said who society is telling him that he should be yeah i think that's probably the best last word for this so what do you think happens next time well 
friends, Nanami is un- going to undergo yet another transformation, I do believe. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think she um, transforms into then? <laughs> well, the next well, the next episode is called um Nanami's egg, which signifies like hatching and transformation and like going from one one stage of life to the next. Um, it also could just very well be like Nanami stumbles upon an egg and like <laughs> tries to like help it hatch. You know, honestly, I will be fully transparent and just say that I was paying more attention to the dialogue um, that was being said rather than the images that were being shown this time around. Um, Utena is very much focused on Anthe and asking her, do you have any problems you can't tell anyone about? Everyone has a secret. So I think that also ties into whatever's going to go on with Nanami in the next episode of like, what secret is she harboring now? And what transformation is she going to undergo as, as a result? Wait, what secret is Anthe harboring or Nanami? Well, both, but because the episode's titled Nanami's Egg, I think it's just going to be tied up into Nanami as well. Okay. Also, like, I feel like we're already at a point where we can't, we can't look at Nanami episodes without also looking at Anthe's role in making them happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because Nanami is clearly Anthe's punching bag at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there is a brilliant line in the preview (laughs) where Anthe parrots, or where Anthe parodies the student council speech where she says, if we don't break the shell, the omelet will never be made. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, apparently there will be omelets. Uh-huh. Perhaps several other types of egg dishes, as Anthe was muttering them to herself throughout the episode preview as well. Which, Nanami may be in real danger there. <laughs> <laughs> Depending upon, like, what transformation we're talking about. Right. Um, <laughs> but we are going to have resident Nanami understander and friend of the show, Carly, back with us next episode. <laughs> we may also have another special guest with us. Stay tuned for that. And uh, because it is an Anami episode, I would love to hear from all you Nanami stands out there. What you like? What are your favorite theories about this character? What appeals to you about her? And what do you think like her purpose in the narrative is? Now that we're going to be getting to one of the episodes where it makes really obvious what her role is in all of this, uh, I think that now might be the time to like do a more deeper dive on this character on the show because now Chesney is going to have had at least most of the knowledge necessary to, to understand this character. So write in let us know what you think you can reach us at absolute destiny a podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at zetai unmei pod i'm also individually on twitter at life and neon and i'm on there as well as at car cutie uh we both have 
uh, Twitch accounts that you can follow. Um, I am an absolute gremlin on TikTok if you'd like to go <laughs> uh, <laughs> look at um, the monstrosities I've created there. Feel free. And yeah, we will see you next time.